from a sustainable business point of view, we, you know, we, we were looking at the market and the opportunities, if you like, or the, the options for being consolidated weren't that appealing to us. Although obviously we did, we did look at it. At that stage, our, the, the, the practice in its own right had been around for 120 or 130 odd years at that point. And yes, we'd more than doubled the business. Yes, we'd grown it and developed it and continued that culture. But we felt we were standing on the shoulders of giants and it wasn't necessarily ours to completely sell, I guess, if that makes sense. Welcome to Blunt Dissection the original and longest-running long-form interview show in veterinary medicine, where we delve into the minds of the creme de la creme of our profession and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Dave Nichol. On each episode, I have the privilege of dissecting the success stories of world-class talent, those who have scaled the heights of achievement and are shaping the future of our field. Together we'll explore their stories, their life-changing decisions, thought patterns, processes, habits, anything that enable them to operate at the very top of their game. Our goal? To give you the insights, the inspiration, the aha moments that you can use to carve your own pathway to success in this incredible field we call veterinary medicine. Because remember, everyone, you included, has a story. So sit back, take notes if you wish, and let's get ready to dissect success on another episode of the Blunt Dissection podcast. So welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection Podcast. I hope you like the new intro. We're just streamlining things a little bit. Now, we're back to another episode in the Changemaker series, which I'm fascinated about doing this year. And on today's show, we're joined by two people that are definitely shaking things up in their own way. Here on this side of the Atlantic, here on this side of the Atlantic in the United Kingdom. Dr. Matt Flan and Dr. Caroline Collins are directors of Pennard's Vets. Pennard Vets are in the southeast of England, and the way they're shaking it up is to completely buck the trend, particularly here in the United Kingdom, but globally, of selling practices to corporate buyers. They've decided to shun what are eye-watering multiples on offer for people who sell practices in favor of what they believe to be a much more sustainable and equitable model. One that they're betting will enable their practice to grow sustainably into the future, to survive not just for the next couple of years, but for the next several decades, and to make sure that the team are hugely engaged, empowered, involved, and are in fact owners along the way all against the backdrop of ethical sustainability. Did I get your attention? I hope so. So let's dive into this conversation with two really inspiring people doing some extremely innovative work to change their bit of veterinary medicine. So welcome to the show, guys. Um, little preamble for the listeners is we actually practiced for a long time. I don't know if we overlapped in the same area, but practiced for ages in Northwest Kent at sort of almost neighboring practices. So Pennard Vets right next to just slightly further anti-clockwise round, no clockwise round the M25 from where I grew up as a vet really at, at Park Vets. And weirdly, I looked after your parents' dogs in Sydney. This is true. Which is completely bizarre. 
completely bizarre. So what a small world it is. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome to you both. Thank you for giving us some time today. Thank you. Thank you. So I think probably a good start point would be uh, just a little bit of history about you both, your journeys towards where you are in veterinary medicine just now, and perhaps a little bit of background to the history of Pennard Vets. And how do we get to where we are before things get really interesting? So let's put a little little stick in the ground there and then we'll spend our time talking about the really interesting stuff that is the real meat of this show afterwards. But where were you before? Tell me about Pennard Vets and your careers prior to this point. So I've been coming to one of our practices for many years, so since I was doing my A-levels, when it was known as Eaton Veterinary Clinic, and carried on coming back when I was seeing practice and met Matthew and the team as Pennard Vets when they took it on. And then from there, when I qualified, I went up to Nottingham and did some mixed practice and then got a phone call to say, would you like to come back? And felt it was probably the long-term job that I wanted because I like the culture, I like the practice, I like the people. And they've since now had me back for coming up for 19 years. And then probably about five, six years ago, I became one of the leadership team, along with Matt. Yep. When did you take over the practice, Matt? Okay, so it was 2007 when I became a director. And and at that point, I joined the practice in 99. And it was my first job out of uni. And I always thought I'd be here for maybe one year before going on somewhere else. And it's such a lovely environment, such a lovely place. The team around me at that time were, you know, were were supportive and obviously if continued to be so and so we, we just made it our home in all honesty so that was it was almost like fate to come here as my first job outside of college indeed I actually um, applied to a different job further down the train line and um, the boss of that practice passed my CV on to the boss of this practice and said yeah you want to you'll interview this bloke if you're looking for a job so anyway that was that and um, so obviously I hung around long enough and it was offered you know to buy into the the business in 2007 and then gradually you know bought in over the years and the old guard shall we say fun uh, retired in 2011 and we've been at the helm ever since and there are uh, three of you as directors is that correct or uh, of the business or or four have i missed anyone yeah so from 2011 onwards there were four of us who were owners and directors and that went down to three along the way and then the three of us still remain as directors but we're, we're minor minor shareholders now in the business given the ot status mm. and that is a, a nod to interesting stuff to come i want to ask because so you, you both are lifers at penhard's vet right like you literally get less time for murder as i'm sure there's as an adaptation of a bad joke but what is it that made it so sticky can you give us a bit of a, a background clearly you're doing interesting stuff now, but there was always good stuff happening. For vets to to stay around for that length of time is now highly unusual. So what made you guys stick this out? What were the highs, lows? And give me a little bit of history on what it was like to work at, at Pennard Vets before it kept you staying around. I think the main reason that it was a good place to work was that there was very good team engagement, particularly coming in as younger vets. And then we've been given the room to grow. So although we're at the same practice, we're doing very different things than we were 
10, 20 years ago. Can you give a little example? I think what you said there, I'll really... In terms of the support you got, like what did that look like and what are the things that have changed? Like how have the opportunities come along and and was that intentional or did this sort of rather, did you drive it or was this coming, is this something, an environment that existed? I'm kind of curious, are you different or was the environment different? So so obviously there have been vets who joined before us and and since we joined who who have come and gone as it were. I think I view myself as being a little bit lucky, like like, like in all these things, is... We have a main branch in Seven Oaks, and at the time, Tonbridge was um, new, newly into the Penance family. And the principal who was running this location was occupied after a couple of years, um, from like 2002 or three onwards, he, he was occupied a lot of the time elsewhere. So we were, in hindsight, me initially, and then when Caroline joined in, we were given probably a degree of latitude to just get on with it and we've always been a little bit restless maybe and wanting to try new things or different things or we would go away and listen to what was going on on the kind of like management circuit and be all enthusiastic and I think as long as we weren't costing money and we weren't causing trouble we could kind of get away with it kind of thing and it got to the stage where the branch where we were both based at because we, we worked side by side at the coalface for many years together Carolyn and I did we could test a lot of things to then implement elsewhere in the practice. And I think it was a little bit, I'm not sure whether it was by accident or by design, probably a little bit of both, knowing, knowing our predecessors, because obviously being very switched on. Then we had the opportunity to, to develop that, uh, develop and uh, nurture that appetite for trying something different. Mm. And it was a blessing in hindsight. It was an absolute blessing. So I used to get a little bit frustrated sometimes when if we would try something and we'd actually you know, be quite successful in obviously clinical outcome was was always top of the list. But on the back of clinical outcome, sometimes there'll be some financial gain. And I'll be like a little bit frustrated going, oh, we've done all this work and we're not seeing the gain. But, you know, that's not the reason we were doing it. We were doing it for the clinical advancement and we weren't yet thinking about the financial side of stuff. And, and obviously that always comes second to what's important clinically. Kind of interested to hear your side of that as well, Caroline. What was your experience of, of you know, this is the flip side of a coin here? Yeah, as Matt said, we were kind of given free reign, which meant that we could experiment. And it also meant that we could bring a smaller team with us, which was great. They were quite happy with failure and success. We just didn't necessarily share our failure as widely as we did our success with the rest of the group. We would just rejig it until it became more successful and they were very good at allowing us to do that. So it gave you the opportunity to experiment and fail, but also to see the success when you did. And then the team themselves would start to come back with things that they wanted to change. Mm. So they then became a lot more the driving force as well. So we did parties and then suddenly the team came and said, no one can come at lunchtime. Can we run them in the evening? which is not something that most people would kind of volunteer to do is to come in to work at night and run a puppy party or the nurse clinics they were very forward about doing 15 years ago so they've been running a long time so it's been really great to have them grow with you and want to advance what we were doing and I think yeah did I envisage being here as long as I have been probably not did I envisage being part of the leadership 
Probably not. I just wanted to be a very good general practice vet. But as you move and grow, things change. I wonder, are there any examples of some of your early, I've got a really interesting picture in my mind of this sort of little you sound like you're sort of the skunk works of the group at the minute you know you're kind of like just testing and mildly harassing your boss with ideas which sounds a bit familiar did you have any notable what a couple of notable wins or things that you describe as favorite failures uh, with hindsight or <laughs> disasters I mean, one of mine was instigating senior health checks mm. so i worked at my previous practice and was frustrated that it was a firefighting practice so I'd only see cats and kidney failure right at the very end and I remember having that conversation when I moved down here and us talking about it and within the first 18 months I'd been here I was given free reign to find out costings and put together a package and then experiment with it and then after six months and I did an audit and then I did further audits as we went on and realized actually how much we picked up by doing it. And that was, I think that was one of my favorite successes because it clinically, it gave me more job satisfaction as well as the patients. And actually the, the impact, I mean, it was phenomenal from that in terms of patient care and the number of renal failures we picked up you know, early renal failure we picked up and we could actually make a, a substantive difference to quality of life and, and longevity as well. And actually, just that point about the audits, we were, if we were doing things, we we were strongly encouraged to present a plan beforehand and also then to measure it afterwards. It wasn't just a case of, let's have a chat over coffee and yeah, you can give it a go and we'll have a feel whether it's good or not. There was actually a, a presentation of, proposal and then a follow-up to go is this is this actually factually and numerically working so I think that was very good discipline within that kind of you know inventive not not inventive nature but that that element and desire for change when something worked then did that become a part of the DNA of the practice or was it harder you know I, I have no trouble imagining the enthusiasm from you guys but once you'd gotten this program in place, like a lot of people don't want the extra effort of, oh God, like we just want to do the vaccine and get the cat out of there to catch up, like we're, we're drowning. How did you then, or did you, I don't want to lead the question, but once you found something that worked, was there resistance? How did you communicate that out? Yeah, so people don't like change, generally do they? We were lucky because we were, I suppose, fairly strong personalities within our little five to mother practice. It was a given that if we were rolling with an at work, and the whole, as Caroline suggested, a lot of this was team driven anyway. So that the buy-in locally within this practice was absolutely fine. Obviously, there were more established and senior people in you know across the group, and persuading change you know is not always easy because that so that became another skill set we developed the hard way. You're almost talking about managing up there. I see wry smiles across both of your faces as I asked that question, which have turned into proper giggles now. So managing up, how do you, this is not the subject, but while we're at it, what was that skill set of managing up and sideways when they're colleagues or bosses? We would generally get buy-in from those people that we knew would want the buy-in. So we would get a groundswell of opinion for change at the other practices with 
people that felt the same way so we could present them the information or we could invite them down here to see the changes that we've made so that there were influencers up there along with managing up so generally speaking the managing up was a case of giving the audits to show what had and hadn't worked and why it had worked and then actually having the right people on the ground and I'll be honest with you generally that was the nursing team who liked the clinical outcomes and liked the fact that it gave them more responsibility and more job satisfaction and then they would remind everyone what needed to be done. It was a case of getting the first followers at the other practices and then getting them to get everyone else on board. Yeah. You're building networks of allies to to move the conversation forward. I like it. Okay, so we've established that you found a home. We've established that there was quite a innovative certainly colour to the brush in your branch and that you were driving some change around the practice. The directorship conversation is always an interesting one, particularly, you know, we've been through this round of acquisitions where buying into a practice, anybody who considered it in the last decade was almost priced out of the ability to do it because the multiples on offer for practices were so high. The number of people I've heard who were in line for a partnership of some kind or lined up as a, as a succession plan that stayed for years, gave for years, built a business, and then the practice was sold out from underneath them is really quite shocking. Whilst it's understandable with the multiples and hard to judge anyone for doing that, but shocking nonetheless that that's, you know, that happens to people. Can you talk a little bit about your transition from being an assistant or associate doctors on the team to becoming uh directors or owners or and maybe and those two things are separate I get but could you talk about your transition into that that feels like an important thing just to establish before we go into what you guys are doing and and the, the main reason I want to have this conversation yeah so our predecessors did so I bought in 2007 and they were getting offers from the very early consolidators even at that point and they actually made it clear that we could actually get more money. I think in that in those days, it was only it wasn't substantially more, but it was more. But for their point of view, the difference wasn't worth it, and they wanted to keep a traditional aspect of the practice. I'm not sure whether they would have made the same decision two or three years later, but they'd already started that process yeah. in, 20, in 2007. So, in terms of that traditional amount, I mean, the, the amount that we had to raise to buy in was was substantial. It was a very well run practice. My our predecessor were very astute, both clinically and, and from a business point of view. And you're absolutely right. You know, I, I felt that it was probably the peak of what individuals could afford in those days. And then, and that was, and obviously that forms part of the latter story because obviously the business is at least doubled in size, if not more than that, actually. It's, it's more than doubled in size since those days. And the business is on a different level. So um, that individual kind of buy-in does actually make it even harder. In terms of the personal transition, it was, from my point of view, I think I don't think it was all that different, in all honesty. There was a few people, perhaps in the client care team and stuff like that, who would almost then, you know, view slightly differently, but not certainly in branch, only in other branches. The team that I'd like, grown up with in practice were always my team, and they always treated me the same, you know, before and after becoming the director. Okay, cool. Caroline might have a different view, or... 
I think, yeah, I obviously bought in slightly later when we had to raise the funds, but we bought in not as a traditional partnership, but as a shareholders of the practice. So do you, at that point, transition the business over to sort of limited company at that point with shares rather than sort of partners at that stage? Yeah. So the previous owners had made it a limited company. So we bought in in shares rather than as a partnership. Yeah, that's how we, we came into it. You know, I love the fact that, because you do hear occasionally of people still willing to do that, but it also does feel like it's very, very rare. And I'm thinking, you know, a lot of our audience are in the United States for this show and they're really just starting to hit this sort of, particularly in general practice, maybe not specialty, but but general practice, that's where the a lot of the consolidation activity is happening. The multiples are just insane. I've heard of like, like pushing up 18, 19, 20x for practices in, in there. It's just insane money. And of course, people just can't afford to buy into that. So that leads to really the things that Penarts I was always aware of because of my time at Parvets and always had a, a great deal of respect for. But it was really when you made the decision to sell the practice to the team and move it into an employee-owned trust that that was really a, a bold move, uh, almost a statement move of kinds. So I would like to hear a lot more about what was going on, like the history of the market. What what prompted that? Like there's there's clearly pain in the market. So maybe that's the start point for coming into that decision. What pain in the marketplace were you seeing that made you think, I think this is a good decision for us? Like was because it's such a strong, it, it screams values call to me. But knowing the business smarts that you guys have as well, there will be more than that. There'll be a strategy behind this you know, for the future. And I don't mean that in any devious or sort of dastardly and muttly kind of way, but just in a, you guys think about things and make decisions with intent. So can you speak more to the driving forces behind that, maybe market-wise, but also your own personal motivations to, to make this decision? So personal-wise, we could see our team growing and people that could come up the ranks and be the future leaders. What we could also see from the market was the fact that the traditional buying-in model, as you say, was becoming potentially untenable as things move on. And the fact that the business had grown considerably since we took it on so what we had to raise was a struggle and we knew that anyone coming in in the future buying in as we had would struggle to raise the kind of funds as the practice grew so it sparked a conversation I think we'd probably been mulling over since we were looking after the Tunbridge site which was everyone's putting in how could we make it that everyone could benefit from it? So there were some evenings where we'd sit and brainstorm ideas and we'd sort of be chatting about, wouldn't it be fabulous if there was a way that, you know, everyone could get something if we achieved this goal? And I think that little nubbin of an idea just kept on growing. And then I think the idea of the OT was Matt's. And 
he wanted to go and research it because he felt there was a way it could be done as a different way to keep the practice independent but keep the team as the primary benefactors. So could I, just for the, a lot of people listening might not know what an EOT is. So a little sidebar question into what is an EOT? Matt, this is your your doing, your idea that you want to go off and research. So maybe I'll direct that question to you. What made this right? You could, you could have bought lots of pizza for everyone. You could have shared, done a profit share with everyone. You're, I don't want to spoil the punchline here, so I'm going to let you explain what an EOT is. Yeah, so I mean, so effectively, an EOT, I suppose, is a, as a name, is a vehicle for employee ownership in the UK. But employee ownership exists in the US and in Australia under different names. I think ESOPs is one acronym that's used elsewhere and so on. So the actual employee ownership model does work globally. And, you know, there are, you know, businesses, you know, across the world um, which are employee-owned and, and actually very, very successful. I think um, Publix Supermarkets in, in America is probably the biggest EO business over there. Within the UK context, the Employee Ownership Trust is a formal government scheme that was introduced in the coalition government of, I think, 2012, 2013, where, and it came off the back of the UK government doing research into employee ownership businesses in the UK and globally, and there, the neutral, if you like, research out of the UK government was that actually there's a lot of benefits to the economy of employee ownership businesses. They tend to be more profitable. They tend to weather recession much better than traditional businesses. Profits stay local. Profits stay local. Um, there's much more employee engagement, happier citizens, all that kind of malarkey. So they actually they wanted to create a government facility, almost also a government-backed facility to encourage it. So within the UK context, if more than 50% of the shareholding is sold into one of these trusts, um, then there are certain tax benefits. So that's where that, and but obviously with the greater than 50% number coming in, it means that, you know, the employee trust has control of the company. <laughs> However, in, you know, you, you know, we could have sold less than 50%. We could have sold 30% into a vehicle. It's just that there wouldn't be the tax benefits for A, the sellers, or B, actually the team. So in, you know, with the UK vehicle, the first £3,600, I think, per year is free of any tax to the employees if there's a payout to them from the trust. That's the important other side of the equation there. From a psychological aspect, Certainly a lot of the studies are in America that employee ownership just has to be as a minimum of 30% to have substantial effects on business and the economy. So, you you know, it can be as little as 30% to have really good impact socially and, and everything else. In the UK, the government says it's greater than 50% to give the employees control. That must have thrown up okay, a couple of things come to my mind there. This notion of trickle-down economics, which the high and the mighty seem to blasely throw around as they make billions in this 99%, 1% world that we now live in. Forget the Pareto principle. It's, it's winner takes all the way things are now. But And the notion seems nonsensical. But this actually is a way of not just trickling down, but sort of really cascading 
quite a lot. It's a very equitable sounding way of doing it, a very pull up short of saying socialist way of doing it, but it really is. It's about social engagement for your team and engagements. Maybe the socialist word is the one that's laced with controversy there, but in terms of the concept of making sure there is equity and equality and 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 engagement and reward for people like how underpaid are our reception team members for the crap that they often have to put up with and our nurses for for the crap they have to put up with from a different group of people and the practice managers for the crap they have to put up with from absolutely everybody it feels like a very nice and just way of sharing the spoils as it were of running an effective business but also ensuring a, a greater likelihood of running an effective business but it must also have thrown up some questions and some challenges like people listening to this right now go what are you talking about as a paradigm you're talking about me giving away control of my business to the staff are you out your mind Dave what are you doing what threw up in your mind with this like what what did you have to deal with to make this decision and was it easy to let go of that are there times when this is a good decision and this would be a bad decision? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, there's an awful lot to unpack there. So, um, was it an easy decision? No. But as you can imagine, imagine we spend a lot of time thinking about it. Going backwards, if it, is it right for all practice? Is it, is it right for all businesses? The answer is no, I would say. We were confident it was good for us. For, for or, or, sorry, that's not, that's not, I'll, I'll rephrase that. We were confident that it'll be good for the team and the business. Because we'd spent, you know, certainly at least the last 10 years building a very good management structure within the team. When we kind of sat, started to sit in the hot chair, you know, and when, in, you know, when we started, when, when our predecessors had left the building, we quickly realized that all roads led back to the senior partner or whatever for everything. You know, oh, the, the light bulb's gone in the toilet. Can you just go change that at lunchtime? Or the hedge needs trimming out the front. And it's like, wh- why are we doing this? So we, we quickly learned that we needed to put a really good, strong management team in place to deal with the management of the business when we allowed us to go, you know, focus on the leadership, as it were. And out of some, from that change we'd made, we knew that the culture was developing very strongly, that there was a degree of autonomy within the business and the practices. And the culture was strong. The culture was good. And we have quite a lot of respect within the team for HR processes and things like that. So we didn't have, you know, we don't have people that would necessarily could potentially, what's the word, take advantage of the situation and things like that. So we had we had a very strong team and a very strong culture. So we felt that the team could easily cope with this transition psychologically, if, if nothing else. If there's a business, I mean, I've, I've heard from colleagues and stuff that some practices can be a little bit more chaotic maybe ruled by a few dominant personalities and it's not always uh you know great so i think those practices or those businesses may need to actually develop their culture first or develop their 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 suitability first and indeed a lot of consultants who want to give businesses training prior to becoming eo focus purely on developing culture and all that kind of thing ahead of time so is right for everyone, no, but we knew it was right for us. We could also see the future leaders that weren't there yet, but that could come in. And I think that was a big driving force for us, was we could see people that could look after the practice really well. 
and it was just looking for an opportunity to give them the option to do that. What did you do to develop culture? Were there certain things that you had to focus on or certain painful decisions or things that particularly worked for you? And if you had to describe your culture now, like what sort of culture, how would you describe your culture? So I mean, we have our values, which are being people focused, both the team and our clients, being looking to continuously improve and being clear in communications and what we're talking about with the team, as well as one I think every veterinary practice has, which is we expect people to show compassion. That's a given in our role. What we did was we tried to be very clear about what we wanted and what was and wasn't acceptable. And that potentially did lead to some interesting conversations because there maybe had been more autonomy that didn't fit with the values that we had to address prior to looking at the transformation to being employee owned, to make sure that everyone understood what it was that was, there was the consistency of what we expected and what was expected of people. In some ways, what I'm hearing is that, you know, mission is a word that is bandied around and it's very rare to find a mission that is actually something that is useful from a leadership or management point of view. But it sounds a lot like perhaps you had a mission that was, we are going to become an employee-owned business because we see that as being the future, that you had to do quite a lot of work in order to get the practice into shape, which is a lot different than practices where the mission is simply something clinical. You know, I say, eat, sleep, vet, med, repeat, eat, sleep, vet, med, repeat. Whereas you've actually got something that's very, very purposeful or clear use that word clear it is about people and it is a compassionate thing to to give ownership away i think what we were trying to achieve was a really good business mm. and therefore could become employee owned as opposed to the goal being the employee yeah. ownership so the the employee ownership thing later if that makes sense so yep. yes it was there as a, a you know a floating thought at the back of the mind but it was only Later on, we went actually, no, you know, let's look at ways to make things a bit more equitable, a bit more sustainable from a financial point of view, from a, a business point of view, being a, a sustainable business. And I know that's, you know, um, became a very fashionable kind of thing, especially obviously with the environment. But from a sustainable business point of view, we, you know, we, we were looking at the market and the opportunities, if you like, or the the options for being consolidated weren't that appealing to us although obviously we did we did look at it at that stage our the the practice in its own right had been around for 120 or 130 odd years at that point and yes we'd more than doubled the business yes we'd grown it and developed it and continued that culture but we felt we were standing on the shoulders of giants and it wasn't necessarily ours to completely sell I guess if that makes sense so we had all these different factors in the back of our, our mind. And then, and at the same time, we were building that strong culture. We didn't know what the end result would be at that time. There, was, there wasn't a purpose. But almost through serendipity, all these things, you know, almost come in and they all, they all go into the, into the blender and, you know, outcomes are 
you know, cake. What looks like a, a, a well thought out thing that's, you know, you've come to by following, really by following what feels like instinctively from your values and trying to run this quality business. Stewardship was the word that came into my mind as you were talking there. You know, you felt like you had stewardship of this entity for a time, which is terrific. Can I ask, what has been the impact on your people? You know, in terms of some of the pain, I'll briefly outline what I see out there. And I could go back to my time when I was at Part Vets, and I, I could see even then application rates when I started my work there were higher and they were starting to dwindle even then, 15, 17 years ago, maybe that is now. And then I went to Australia for seven years and it was seemed a wee bit better there, but you could even then you could start seeing the response rates to adverts dropping, came back to the UK and it's like, boy, this is getting really tough, even in places where you think people want to work. And now all over the world, wherever I go speak to people, the, the problem's exactly the same thing. There's just not enough people for the volume of work that is around to do. And yet there are places that are, I would describe them islands of excellence. I hope because I put you up as a model of, of one of these for VMX that you're about to tell me that you are. None, I'm absolutely certain that you are. But there, there are practices that are not struggling in the same way that everybody else, that are not short of staff at all locations and are not having to turn business away because they've thought about these things and, and they have people send them resumes even when they don't have jobs. So it's not that everybody is struggling, but the market has a problem. What has been the impact on your business and has it had enough time? Because this is still a relatively recent recent thing and big chains like this can take years to really pay off. But what was the before? What's the response from the team been in terms of the now, the vibe, the culture, the retention? And have there been any short-term payoffs for you in going down this route? So we were discussing it before COVID. We were obviously talking about this as an option and looking at it. And then COVID hit and we just obviously put it on a back burner for a good few months whilst we worked out what was going to, to go on. Uh, well, we exist. Yes. How's this going? How is everyone? I was focused on the team, obviously, at that point. And then towards the back end of that year, there was still unease from the team because they would hear of friends who've gone into work and their practice had changed hands and all that kind of stuff. And they would say to us, are you going to sell? Or when are you going to sell? Probably mm. more precisely. It was monthly, um, at least monthly, if not weekly. We'd get that question really often and we felt they've had so much uncertainty with COVID. What could we do that would at least help in some respects with certainty and then we literally went foot to the floor to get everything through for the EO so that at the beginning of 2021 we announced the team sadly over Zoom but we announced the team that we could at least give them the certainty that their job was their job and it wouldn't change and the practice was not without their permission I suppose now that they're the majority shareholders, nothing would change. And the following day, I went around some of the practices and there were quite a number of the team who came up and said, I don't really understand what employee ownership means, but I understand that 
things aren't going to change and that makes me very happy and that was kind of the immediate benefit of doing it was the fact that it gave that the more security to the team that they knew that there wasn't going to be a sudden dramatic change that they wouldn't be in control of it was a degree of psychological safety in a period when it wasn't much it's almost a lifeboat a mental mental health lifeboat at that point over and above any material benefits just the implication of that even without being well understood it was a much more than a comfort blanket it really was a a life raft in some ways with the sounds of it i think that that was the driving force with getting it through as as soon as we did at that point yeah um, and then from there we've spent time with one of our team who is the employee trustee going around and giving the education as to what employee ownership means yeah you asked the question is it too soon i think it's still early days because it's only been be 2 years fairly soon but what we we have found and i know matt kind of alluded to it before if there's a you know light bulb that's out it's a case of that needs sorting what we tend to hear now is more we need to fix this than they need to fix it referring more now to the management team but mm-hmm. what we hear is the team actually wanting to come up with solutions which are generally vastly better solutions than any one of us would come up with because they're at the coal face they know what works so it's really nice that where before we would ask them and encourage them now they actually feel empowered to do it because they are employee owners mm. and it's a little bit full circle or not when obviously when Cal and I were that you know in Tunbridge all those years ago it was just us that kind of had that kind of mentality and given that permission by the then the leadership whereas now the whole team has that it's not just those vets on the ground and it's across the group do you feel like you've moved from the point of you've clearly moved from the point of do this not that have you moved past the point of well what do you think you should do to oh you've you've done it and that was quite a good idea yeah pretty much there are times when i want changed and I kind of go that's brilliant I knew nothing about it but you know what it's fabulous I'd have never put a disco ball up there, but actually that works <laughs> yeah. and, and funnily enough actually that's one of the transitions that we are going through we have to learn with is that obviously before we were aware of everything and you know and obviously we were a, a smaller practice before but actually getting to that state where maybe some things have changed which are not just light bulbs but they're actually more fundamental and you walk in and go why has that happened and as opposed to going in, in there and seeking an explanation you just actually then you've got to go okay there's a good reason for that I just you know just talk to me about it and it's not to criticize or to praise or anything else. it's just to, it's just for us to accept that actually you know that there is that there is that genuine authority for other people to you know, obviously by consensus and do the right thing. And it doesn't, we don't have to know about it necessarily, which is good. That sounded a bit wrong, but you know what I mean? No, I do. I mean, it's the, the irony is not lost on you either by the sounds of it, but that is somebody else now doing the senior pet care. <laughs> that isn't it. 
which is terrific. How many, you know, how many practice owners complain about a lack of ownership and they've created this hamster wheel effect around themselves because like the old guards that you took over from were responsible for everything. And when you took holiday, the wheels fell off and it's a, a sure sign of authoritarian leadership as there is or centralized leadership. You know, that's as, that's about the most characteristic symbol I can think of that you can't take holiday with the thing not just falling apart. I think you were talking about other you know, the benefits and things like that. We have got to the stage, yeah. we got to the stage last November when there was a payout to the team and it was such a lovely thing to be able to do. So it's the first payout we'd actually made in the scheme of the business. It wasn't a massive amount, but you know, for the people that received it, some of the amounts were, were really significant, if that makes sense. And it was the first time we'd been able to. So obviously, we've, we've had all the non-financial kind of touch points of why EO is important. And I think they're all... On uh, board. The, the, no, so yeah, so all, all those other things are, are way more important. It's not financial. So the whole employee ownership thing is not necessarily about the financial remuneration to the employees, they're all paid well. They all they all get a decent salary. They all you know get fairly rewarded. So any extra on top of that's kind of a bonus, if that makes sense. And actually, so to be able to then deliver that eighteen months or so into becoming employee owned was a really really good thing to do. And you know, and so from our perspective, as you know, kind of quote unquote the founders, to be able to have this conversation with people to give them those kind of you know checks, as it were. It is obviously makes us feel good, but actually that doesn't matter because obviously the people receiving it, I think that they had that real connection with actually what the future holds for them as well. So that was that 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 was just a really, really good thing. And as far as recruitment goes, I do think also that it, you know, I would I would like to think that it helps with recruitment, certainly. I don't know if we've actually surveyed any of the vets that have joined us recently to go, how much was this a factor? I suspect probably not because it's not necessarily an easy concept to understand because you're thinking about you want other things when you're joining a new place, not whether employee owned or not. However, they're probably joining us because we've got the right culture and the right attitude and the people are friendly and everything else. And that's all part of the EO mix. So it, it's an interesting one, but we have an amazing team that help with our recruitment, um, you know, internally and externally, and they seem to be doing a very good job. Okay. So, I'm going to come off of that because as if that wasn't enough to put your practice into employee ownership, that wasn't enough. And so the Skunk Works team weren't done there. They kept going and decided we are going to become a B Corp, a B Corporation. Now, I'm not sure if this designation applies outside of the UK and even for in the UK, there's precious few people who or businesses that have that even in the whole business world, but certainly in the veterinary business world, you're the only ones that I know of. So go ahead and explain. And, and Caroline, I believe this is very much you've driven this one. Tell us what a B Corps is, why you've done it. And again, what's the impact of this? Implications and impact. Let's do that. So B Corporations or Benefit Corporations is what the B stands for, were actually originally established in the U.S., so it is an, an American thing. And it was basically looking at how businesses operate and the vast majority of businesses operate on stakeholder return. 
So their purpose of being a business is to maximise what they can give to their stakeholders at the end of the year. That's a legislative requirement in the US almost, isn't it? Like you're obligated to do that as a director of a business. And they were looking at is there, there there are companies that have purpose, which is more than just making shareholder value at the end of the year. And that's really where the B Corp came from. It is, I suppose it is a bit of a social movement. It's looking at how you use your business as a force for good. And when we became employee owned, we obviously explained to the team what we were looking at doing and that there was a purpose behind the company, which was looking after our patients and our clients, but as much as that looking after the team as well. And being in the type of business that we're in, Everyone cares about the environment, let's be honest. You know, the, the kind of business that we're in, it, it is what we're all passionate about. So to talk to the team about how the company was doing, we looked at are there ways of us effectively, I think I joked about it, having our homework marked. So are there ways that we could have the business assessed to go, this is your business and this external people have said you've done very well. And we looked out of what's there within the veterinary field. So over here, we've got BVA's Good Workplace. We've got Vet Sustain promoting investors in the environment, things like that. And we kind of looked at them all and felt that actually the B Corporation side of things encompassed so much. So it's Yeah, it looks at the business as a whole, not just what you're providing. So with that... It was a case of us kind of going, that really fits with the employee ownership. It really fits with our values. So we went ahead and took a very, very thorough assessment. I feel for a colleague who did all the paperwork behind it, Joy, she did a fabulous job. And we just went in and had the, the business assessed and were, were fortunate enough to pass with our first assessment, which I think came as a surprise to all of us. What we were expecting was to come back with, this is what you need to improve to get to the level of being a B corporation. So we were very, very pleased with that. But what it now gives us is a, a really nice benchmark and we get reassessed every year. And we can look at improving every year. So the score goes to pass from 70 up to 200. So every year we can, or every time we get assessed, but every year we'll obviously try and incrementally improve. But it was a really nice way of telling the team that actually, yes, the company is working in their best interest because the B Corporation does look at your people it looks at how sustainable you are so people planet and profit as your purpose and I think it it's not well known I don't think particularly out there I know when we told the team the question primarily was what is it (laughs) even amongst the team that that are very socially minded but I think is growing quite significantly and the purpose of us doing it was really to look at what we were doing and how we could improve on that. I'm curious just to dig into just a a bit more detail about, so what was involved 
So the notion is the B Core is about sustainable business practice. And it's looking at way more than just shareholder value. It's looking at much, you know, your, again, this word stewardship comes to mind that, you know, it's, it's the people in the practice, it's the environment locally, nationally, supply chains, the way that you look after your people, what you do in terms of recognizing profiting ownership structures, all of those things sound like they're encompassed to be a more socially aware. There's that other word again, social and stewardship. The two words keep coming up. My words, I hasten to point out, not necessarily words that you've you've chucked out there. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but they're just what are you know they're the the words that are coming to mind in our conversation. What sort of stuff was involved? Did you have to change a lot of stuff? And what were some of the what were the the stones they turned over and, and the, the important parts to pass this? So we had to submit a lot of exactly how we look after our team, how we benefit our team, what is the governance. We also had to go through submitting all our carbon footprint, our supply chain carbon footprint, all that kind of stuff so that they could look at the other the wider impact of the practice, not just what we do, but also our supply chain and how they do. One, we had to go through a lot of our policies and procedures. So I would say it was a really nice thing for us to do to kind of go through and just make sure everything was up to date. There were a few little bits that we reworded, retweaked because we'd not looked at them in a while. So it was actually a really valuable exercise as much as anything else. But the critical thing was once we got to the point where the assessment was at a stage where they felt that we would be going on to get the accreditation, was we actually had to make a legal change to our Articles of Association. So our Articles of Association had to change to say that our purpose, our profit is equally distributed to achieve the purpose as well as looking out for the stakeholders. So you actually have to make an amendment to that so that it means that it's not all just funneled into stakeholder value at the end. And what does that mean for for what you invest in in the future? So I think it helps us in, in a way because we can make longer term decisions. So we're able to potentially make investments in something that is a more sustainable solution that maybe would take 10 years to pay off. And actually the fact that we're not just trying to meet a yearly target on profit, we can actually use that to invest and actually make wiser, I'd like to think, decisions without that concern that we're not giving the best value to the shareholders. And it's a filter by which we make decisions. Right. In the back of your mind, when we are making decisions, or even in the front of the, your mind, and, and, and more so on some occasions, then you actually go, well, what does this mean to this, and what does it mean to that? Questions which some individuals may well have been considering before out of their own good conscience, but now there's much more, there's much better framework for it. And actually, so that's also, I guess, important for us, because, you know, we've set this ship sailing, you know, into, you know, the EO employee ownership direction where, and yes, we do sit as directors at the moment and we are on the leadership team at the moment, but at some stage in the future, we're going to, you know, you know, in, in hopefully many years time, we're not going to be at the helm anymore, but we need to be confident that the, the, the next generation of leadership has those values and has that 
kind of view to continue with the stability of the business. Are there any instances that jump to mind in terms of using those filters for decisions, big or small, that spring into either of your minds? Small, it is quite small, but during COVID, obviously, we were rattling through um, PPE at a rate of knots. And one of the team came back and was like, I re- this is really making me uncomfortable that, you know, we're going through all of this. And they went away and they did their research into the ability for us to repurpose, not necessarily recycle it, but to repurpose it. And there was a cost to that, which the practice would have to to take on board. But it felt like the right thing to do. So rather than just sending it all to a furnace or whatever, it's actually take less money, but actually let's repurpose this and use it in a better way. And actually, I think the person who found it when we went with it felt really good that that was something that they'd come up with and Mm. that the team actually really appreciated once they'd found a solution. It was one person's idea, but it was enacted by 120 odd other people. Does that make sense? So Mm. their contribution to society was magnified. What did you repurpose into what? I'm really curious now. It gets sterilised and I think it's used to stuff sofas and furniture and things like that it's a, a recycle works um, oh i so see so find- all the PPA, they just took it sterilized it cut it up and then made it into second you know secondary downstream packing stuff and materials things like that oh i see got it the other thing that you know which, which i don't know if we kind of mentioned but obviously that hurdle for we, you know, for, for keeping that accreditation, that hurdle increases every year. And, and obviously that very nice values of continuous, you know, improvement. But if we want to keep that B Corp status, we need to keep improving. So it keeps you sharp on those decisions as well as to go, well, actually, if I make that decision, I can say the same, but I might not get that B Corp next, or no, I, but we may not get that B Corp next year. So as a company, it actually just brings everything to the fore, the fore, which is important and it's right. This is all of this is project, you know, and some people listening to this will think you're downright crazy. You know, how much money have you left on the table, whatever. I've kind of got two questions. I'll come to the question I was going to do in a second, but let me ask you, looking down the track, sort of 10 years, where does this all go 10 years from now? Like, what does it look like? What do you hope that you accomplish locally and what impact are you looking to have perhaps beyond locally with the decisions you're taking now? What does the business look like? I mean, I think what has definitely happened since we've become employee owned, more so now is that we have a much better corporate governance kind of structure. I was very conscious that earlier in the discussion, you know, we were talking about, you know, almost like a, a degree of socialism and all that kind of stuff, and which I completely understand and I do get. However, the business is, a, is much better run now almost is, is, is actually a better run business because we have because we are forced to have better corporate governance. What does that look like, Matt? So the and when we say that the employees, you know, have control of the company. And so a lot of people go, Oh my good lord, I can't believe that there's a committee to the da 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 and there's not like that, you know, but I suppose it can be like that. But certainly the way um, it's typically set up is that we have a, an employee ownership trust. And it always has to have an odd number of people and 
you know, so we have, at the moment, we have three people sitting on the trust. There has to be, by law, an employee representative on there. And that's that goes aside of that government legislation. So there's an employee representative, and that's the voice of the employees. There has to be an independent trustee, and that's somebody from outside the business who can actually go in there and actually, it's got a business experience, may understand the business actually quite well, or might understand the industry. And then on there as well, there's a, a, another trustee who's typically a director one of the directors so at the end of the day that board and you know which typically meets quarterly would be reviewing the decisions of the normal like management board or the executive committee whatever you want to call so the decisions of the directors of the business are actually held to account by the trustees so the trustees basically say well actually is every single decision made in the best interest of the employees. And if that's the case, that's great. And if it's not, they've got the opportunity to ask questions to understand, you know, why or for clarity. And actually, they also have the authority to remove the directors if they need to. So that's where that control comes into it. But with those trustees, there has to be the, for there to be a majority in that trustee board, the independent trustee has to sit in the majority. So you can have the director trustee and so on and so forth. So there's there's actually really strong corporate governance there. It's quite a nice balance as well, by the sounds of it, without you could you could see easily a them and us yep. getting a control in that and having a balance point. So what it does mean is that before when it was, you know, me, Andy and Caroline sat around the table, we we would have meetings, we'd have good meetings, we'd have budgets, and we'd have all those kind of things which we all get told we should do and all the rest of it. But now we really have to do them properly because we've got an external trustee who's going to go, well, can you show me your budgets and why are you explaining this? And, and we can't just go, well, that's the right, because we feel that's right. <laughs> we can't do that anymore. We have to prove it and justify it. So it actually creates a much better business practice and yes, all the employees can feed back into the employee trustee. The employee trustee does make themselves available at all the locations to listen to feedback and everything else. So there is that voice going back there. So there is that. that. But because of the employee ownership nature of the business, we have all that autonomy. We have all that ownership. And we have all that other stuff going on. And this is just a little bit of that. But it's really important from a, a corporate governance point of view. So we are actually probably a much better, more efficiently run business and much leaner than we were before. But the effects of which or the the um, the results, the, the resulting profits and stuff, there is that there is that to be available for the employees to a degree. And is so, there then a sort yeah. of almost an open books management kind of approach to things where you know there's a lot of transparency about how the business is run at that point? Yeah, so financially, we, we definitely share a lot more of the financials with the business than ever we did before when there was three of us. And we thought we used to be quite open. And and we and now we're even like, you know, we're very open with it, if that makes sense. Certainly from a, a management point of view, we have, me and Caroline don't have anything to do with the day-to-day running of the sites. We have, we've disseminated, not disseminated, that's not the right word, our practices are grouped into little functional units and they're run by a vet and a nurse or a nurse and a nurse. Those two people have, you know, complete autonomy over their their group of practices and they're responsible for their budgets and P&Ls and everything. So it works that way. So, yeah. I'm curious about the future then. So that's very much the, the now, some of the impact, some of the drive. Where does it go in 10 years then? It's helped the governance, it's helped the running. Yeah. We do get a 
approached by the practices who are saying, look, you know, A, we're interested in what you've done. And we have spoken to an awful lot of practices about it. One's gone recently, although we didn't talk directly necessarily to them, but we have spoken to a lot and there are some others, you know, in the offing. But equally speaking, practices which may have actually gone towards a consolidator and looking to us and going, actually, we can see, you know, you're creating a long-term sustainable independent business. Can we join your family? That has happened and, you know, people do that. So, I mean, if that's the direction we're going to go, that's that's where we're going, but it's going to be organic and, and we'll see how that goes on. So, so the John Lewis of, of veterinary medicine in the future. I mean, at the end of the day, if that's going to benefit the teams and the people and, and everything else, then, yeah, let's, let's make it happen. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting model. And, and fun enough, actually, the, the, the people we haven't really talked about in this conversation is the clients. Um, we've had an awful lot of clients who are just going, I just, you know, this is fantastic. You know, we liked you guys beforehand, but now we love you kind of thing. So <laughs> they are really pleased that we've done this. What was it most pleased them? Was it the B Corps? Was it the employee ownership? Or, or was what was it? To be fair, I mean, the conversations that clients have come to me about is around the employee ownership and, and the stability. Mm. I think the B Corp thing is yet to really properly sink into a lot of our clients. Obviously, as time goes by, they'll hear about it more, they'll see it more. And in a way, it's, I suppose it's for them, isn't it? And for us, it's an acknowledgement that we're doing things in a good way. I think from in the same way with the with the teams, there was a degree of concern that, you know, perhaps the future of Penance wasn't necessarily going to be in its current state and that it might change. And obviously they've seen that happen elsewhere locally and they're afraid that we would do the same. That was the main response. And of course, they're just, you know, a lot of clients live and breathe the practice as much as we do. So when we very positive move like that then they feel they're part of it you know and I think that's a that's a really big thing that a lot of you know people perhaps don't appreciate that how much clients actually are invested in our practices it's not just a vehicle for their pets to be kept healthy and and fixed when they're broken it's actually part of the community which again goes back to employee ownership and it goes back to B Corp is all about being part of the community. We've been a part of this community for 135 years now, and we are going to be part of it for hopefully another 135 at least. I wondered as you were speaking if there was if there was a place to have a another trustee on who represents the clients on the board as as well. But uh, <laughs> do you know what? It might well be the case. Absolutely, and we have kind of you know muted between ourselves a little bit whether we do expand that trustee board. As a business, we are growing and getting bigger. And I think as we do, then we will need to expand it. Apart from anything else, I think the employee trustee that sits on the board has obviously been a very steep learning curve for them because they, they've not been exposed to P&Ls. They've not been exposed to balance sheets. They've not been exposed to cash flow forecasts and all the hundreds of other minutiae, you know, or everything else that's going on. And yes, you know, they've been given training and they've gone to courses and everything else. But thinking like, even if you sit in a management position, it's very different to thinking as a director, if that makes sense. And that actually having that corporate responsibility on your shoulders. <laughs> it's been steep learning. And of course, they can't talk about it to other people, can they? They don't have colleagues to talk to apart from the other trustees. And so actually, for no other reason apart from to have 
another employee trustee buddy to share things with, that's, you know, that, that might be purpose. I suppose, Caroline, last words over to you. And is there anything that we've not said? If there's, is there anything that you wish I'd asked about that I've failed to ask about? Or is there any messages that you would give out to anybody considering this? I know it's the start of a journey and, and maybe you've, you're a couple of chapters into what is potentially quite a long book or a series here. But what haven't we said that's important or what would you like to say to wind up? I think we went into this with down a convoluted route, but always following what we felt was right. And what I think I would like people to take from it is that if you do what you feel is right, then sometimes doors will open up and avenues will open up for you that you weren't necessarily aiming for. And what I have found very rewarding about doing this is actually people coming to ourselves and kind of going, it's lovely to see there are other options where it seemed to be a very linear road. And that fits for what we've done within the business. You know, we don't have a linear route for the team. Some of them have done some very interesting job maneuvers and things like that. So it's trying to do what's what's right for the person, the individual or the company that's in front of you is what we've always looked for. And that happens to have led us to this route. And any regrets? I suppose that's maybe the last question on my the tip of my tongue. Doing it sooner would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, there's there's no regrets. And, and Caroline's absolutely right, actually. We paused the button for COVID, so... Yeah. Well, guys, thank you. I hope for anyone listening that you're getting a sense of their options. And that's what this series is all about, is about exploring options and not feeling that you have to be, you know, flattened by what feels like the juggernaut of the wave of work and the challenges and the stresses. And they're real. They're hard to deal with. But we've got good brains. We've got problem solver brains. And whether you're making something up or you're following in the footsteps of others or building on the shoulders of others, as you eloquently put either, there are means and ways of tackling the challenges that we face. And and so I hope this episode perhaps give you some inspiration and motivation to just explore options beyond you because, you know, certainly that's been the case for me. And I would, I would actually thank you because we had conversations, you know, when I was thinking about what to do with my practice and one of the messages here is that, you know, independent is here to stay. Independent is thriving. And there was three words that really came up in the in the conversation for me. Stewardship is the, the one of the strongest for sure. You know, you're, you, I love that as a concept, but sustainable. And then the bedrock of sustainability is really, the last one was stability. And in the context of clients and team, providing that certainty is just the bedrock of like how lovely is it for clients it's very hard for clients to complain when it's the same face they're seeing for 15 years and there's something nice about that and maybe that's some fanciful harriet-esque halcyon days dream of mine but there you go guys you're doing terrific work i just think it's it's marvelous what you've done you know i think you've got a bit of a monopoly on and the vet times reporting at times because but because you're doing remarkable things and different things and good to get a sense of where that skunk work started in this relationship that started a long time ago between you 
I know we've not had Andy on the call today, but Andy is a big part of this, I'm sure, as well. And and so, yeah, just a salute from me from the outside looking in for what you're doing and the inspiration you're giving to the market. And uh, where can people get in touch? If, if you want more email in your inbox, where's the best place to get in touch? Obviously, they can go learn about what you're doing on your website, I'm I'm assuming is one place where you can get people to go look, which is is Penard penardvets.com that's p-e-n-n-a-r-d-v-e-t-s.com but where's the best place to get people to come and get in touch with you if they're interested in more or just want to shout you out and you know like say (laughs) thanks or for some inspiration so we did join with some other practices that are employee owned and we've got a group which is the british veterinary employee owned association the bvoa and there's a contact us form on there, which we'd more than happily hear from people. I was hoping that was going to be like some funny acronym I could I could throw back at you, but I'm, I'm getting nothing now. I'll work on that. Okay, so the BVEOA is a place. Is that a, does that have a website or is that a Facebook group? Did you say a website? Website. Uh, so the address. What's the web address for that? BVEOA.co.uk. BVEOA dot co dot uk brilliant and there's lots of information on that on uh, i.e don't clog up these good people's inboxes too much (laughs) (laughs) said said in the nicest way at all without saying it dave i mean needless to say people can contact us us directly if if need be and my (laughs) email it's very simple it's matt.flan at penalvets.com there you go Guys, brilliant to speak to you. Thank you for taking a bit of time out of your busy days. Wonderful to hear what you guys are up to. And um, yeah, maybe we'll do this again in about five years and check in if that's all right. Absolutely. Nice one. So that is a wrap for another episode of Blunt Dissection. Thank you so much for listening. Before you jump off and get on with your life, would you do me a little favor? Or maybe three. Favorite one, would you just do a quick shout out on social media to let people know you enjoyed the show? Favorite two, drop a little review onto iTunes. And favorite three, if you think somebody needs to benefit and hear this show today, please share it with them. The show has helped countless people overcome countless problems over the years we've been doing it and it's recommendations and shares that allow that magic to happen so from all of us here at bluntness action podcast to all of you out there until next time be safe be well and be happy